This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. The Human Genome Project was launched in 1990 with the then-ambitious goal of sequencing all 3 billion nucleotides that make up our genome. On April 14, 2003, the International Human Genome Sequencing Consortium announced that the DNA sequence of the human genome had finally been completed. But in fact, the human genome has never really been fully sequenced, and there are chromosomal regions of highly repetitive DNA that are still challenging to sequence today. Today, I'm at the McDonald Genome Institute at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm here with Robert Fulton, professor of genetics at Washington University Medical School and the director of development at the McDonald Genome Institute. At WashU, Bob's role is to develop and deliver genomic solutions to a broad range of clinical and research questions. I am the director of development. Um, okay. I've been the director of project development, and I'm also now the director of technology development. So development encompasses both technology development as well as project development. So I'm sort of the face person for, for collaborations, design of projects um, and things, making sure that we're applying the, the most appropriate technologies to the projects, as well as having an eye towards the future and trying to develop new platforms and new chemistries and new technologies. So you've been in genomics since 1994. <laughs> That's correct. So you've pretty much seen everything. Uh, I, I can't say everything, but I've seen, <laughs> I have certainly seen a lot. I've been, been around a long time. I actually started at WashU in 1990, so, but I've been at the Genome Institute here since 94. So wow. I actually started with large-scale mapping so genomics approaches even then. Um, I took a summer job, which I thought was going to be washing glassware and filling pipette tip boxes and things, and I landed in a large-scale mapping lab um, at the time, so it was sort of a precursor to the Human Genome Project, where we were building physical maps of the human genome through PCR and YAKS, at the time, yeast artificial chromosomes. We were building the human chromosome X and human chromosome 7 maps at the time. Before the advent of next-generation sequencing, or NGS, the dominant sequencing technology was Sanger sequencing, developed in 1977. In Sanger sequencing, a DNA polymerase enzyme builds a chain of DNA in vitro using a single-stranded DNA template and incorporating normal deoxynucleotides as chain building blocks. By also incorporating chain-terminating dideoxynucleotides into the reactions, DNA fragments of various sizes and nucleotide ends are labeled and resolved by gel or capillary electrophoresis. The ABI-373 sequencer was one of the first commercially available Sanger sequencers, but it's since been replaced by higher-throughput NGS machines. Yeah, we had, I think at the time, 10 373s did like 24 lanes in 18 hours, um, oh, could good. do maybe 10 KB a day. Um, uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's pretty remarkable, you know, we're, we're probably in the six to seven terabase per day um, range now. 
our capacity in 2005, which was the height of capillary sequencers, was about 8 million sequences a month, which was probably top five for sure in the world. Um, it would take 100 years of that capacity in 2005 to equal one day today. And the improvements in technology didn't stop in 2005. Bob talked about his transition from Sanger sequencing to the first NGS technology, the 454, to today's ultra-high throughput platform from Illumina, the NovaSeq. We started actually with slab gel, so the 373 was a slab gel, so this is pre-capillary. We transitioned from slab gels to capillary electrophoresis, which was a very happy day where we could get rid of all of those gel plates and acrylamide. And uh, the first next-gen platform um, would have been the 454 instrument, um, and that was an amazing leap um, at the time. It's interesting to look at sort of sequence throughput capabilities over the years, and you see this huge inflection point in about 2004, 2005, I guess. Um, and then we started with Selexa Illumina, and through all the iterations of the Illumina instruments to where we are today, where you know, we've just installed our first NovaSeq instrument this spring. It's up and running, and we're you know, starting to transition to that platform as well. The Human Genome Reference is a digital database of assembled nucleic acid sequences, and it serves as a representative example of the human genome. It's been 15 years since the human genome sequence was first published, so it's somewhat surprising that the human genome reference sequence is still incomplete. Bob is a key leader in the Reference Genome Consortium, a group that aims to improve the human genome reference. We at WashU here at the McDonald Genome Institute were part of the Genome Reference Consortium, um, and this is a consortium of ourselves, NCBI, and then EBI, and the Sanger Institute again, so sort of back to our roots. For the human genome, our goal is to improve the human reference sequence, and that's sort of multifaceted. The current human reference sequence is a mosaic of probably 20 to 25 individuals. Um, they're small bits of their genomes, and it's all stitched together. Our goal is, one, to make that as accurate as possible. There are still some regions that are very difficult to sequence um, with current technologies, especially short-read technologies um, and large repeat units don't mix very well. So our goal is to improve those, those regions. And then our other goal is to provide allelic diversity. Although your genome sequence is more than 99% identical to the human genome reference, your genome is actually unique. Our genomes contain slight variations in gene sequences, called alleles, which can be enriched in different populations. Bob discussed how a better understanding of allelic diversity can help scientists to align short-read NGS sequences to the human genome reference. Everybody differs between one or two bases per thousand bases, and there are large stretches in some cases, structural variation, um, large insertions and deletions, um, or significant differences between our genomes. And the goal or the idea is, again, especially with short read mapping, if your sequence or your alleles are significantly different from the human reference, your sequence may not map very well, so it's less interpretable. So if we provide additional alleles so that we better match the reference and an annotated reference, 
that we'll be able to better interpret those short reads. Do we know how much of the genome is currently not sequenced in terms of a percentage? Oh, you know, that's a, good, that's a good question. I don't know that we know exactly. It's in the handfuls of percents where it's challenging to interpret. And some of the sequence is very repetitive. Centromeres and telomeres in particular, they're very repetitive and there's not a lot of interesting information as far as we know. As you transition out of those regions, for instance, there's unique bits um, that are difficult to place and order and orient and interpret, as well as repetitive regions within sort of unique regions of the genome also that tend to be difficult to interpret as well or tend to be variable from different individuals. I asked Bob what kinds of technologies he and his team are using to sequence these challenging regions of the human chromosome. Some NGS platforms, like Pacific Biosciences or PacBio, can generate long read lengths of several kilobases. Synthetic long read technology, like 10x Genomics, generates longer reads by linking Illumina's short read sequences together. Bob discussed how both of these approaches can be helpful in mapping sequences to the human genome reference. We do PacBio sequencing, which provides tens of KB um, read length um, in some instances. 10x genomics technology, um, which is long linking of short reads. So it sort of empowers the short reads a bit where it does give you linking information um, to help you order and orient and identify things that are associated, but their specific unique placement may be challenging. Um, it also helps us to tease apart the two alleles. That's sort of a forgotten thing people tend to gloss over um, is that each person has two genomes, and we tend to mash those together and in interpret those as one unit. And especially in structural variation, that becomes complicated to keep track of that space. If you have just single nucleotide changes, those are reasonably straightforward to keep track of. When you have length differences, it's hard to correlate those to the same coordinate system. Bob has more than 25 years of experience in the generation of DNA sequence and analysis. And as Director of Technology Development at WashU, He's also responsible for testing and evaluating sequencing technologies. I asked Bob to describe what he looks for when evaluating a sequencing platform or technology. Does it provide a unique capability, I think is one. Unique capability or what are the unique aspects that it provides that we don't already have? Um, does it provide similar sequence cheaper? Does it provide longer read length? Does it provide greater scale or other interpretations, but cost matters, throughput matters, ease of working with the platform. Does it enable us to use or to bring less input material to the platform? So that's a key component. I think especially as you have an eye towards the, the clinic, there's a lot of challenging samples, historical samples that are formal and fixed, paraffin embedded um, where the DNA is in pretty rough shape. So does it enable sequencing that or getting at the data in those sorts of materials better? 
And again, you know, you may have a needle biopsy where you have tiny, tiny quantities of DNA and it's the only DNA that you have. So reliability as well as the ability to use small quantities um, is important. So all those sorts of things factor in. I asked Bob what surprised him the most about how genomics and DNA sequencing have developed over the last 25 years. NGS-enabled improvements in sequencing scale have really impressed him. Bob also discussed the implications of increased sequencing scale on lab space, comparing his current space to Forest Park, a St. Louis public park that's bigger than New York's Central Park. It has, it has to be the scale. I just never dreamed that the scale would be as it is today in this rapid of a time frame. And how everything has come along at the same pace. So the sequencing chemistries, for instance, had to advance, but the informatics, the data handling, and the ability to move the data around, um, that had to come along at the same time. The thought of sequencing six or seven terabases of DNA sequence a day is just incredible to me, and especially from the perspective of originally doing sequencing reactions in 1.7 mil Eppendorf tubes. I did that myself. <laughs> right. Four separate tubes, yeah, exa- sequinase. Yeah. Exactly. So from that to the, the amazingly small lab footprint. So I did calculations at one point that if our lab space in 2005 had scaled proportionally to the sequence throughput, it would take like 30 or 35 forest parks, which is about a five or six mile square, it would take that much floor space to handle the lab if it had scaled proportionally. Finally, Bob discussed the things that excite him most about the future of genomics. The population sequencing initiatives that are currently underway, as well as those that will begin over the next few years, will power new discoveries. He's also excited about the impact genomics will have on human health. On the technology side, I mean, we can already produce so much data and the trajectory of that doesn't seem to be slowing. So that's exciting to me. I think the challenges will be providing enough samples and having enough information about those samples to interpret and drive discovery. But I'm really excited about the discoveries that are going to come out of the data that we're producing today. So the impact of tens of thousands of genomes, and you're starting to see this already, these aggregate data sets, and the more scale that we're able to do, the more we're going to be able to glean out key information to power discovery. And you're starting to see the momentum of discovery translate to human health. So that, I mean, that's the ultimate goal for for me is human health or just, you know, improve our lives. And whether it be with human sequencing or ag type projects that we've been involved in, the discovery based on genomic information, I think, is it just seems to be accelerating. The discoveries that are going to come out of that, even in the short term, um, are pretty exciting. So NGS is helping scientists to finally sequence the entire human genome and to improve the human genome reference. A more complete human genome reference will improve genome assembly, yield more reliable genomic analysis results, and facilitate our understanding of allelic diversity. But that's all for now. 
be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Richard Shoreman, Director of Bioinformatics and Professor at the J. Craig Venter Institute in La Jolla, California. We'll be discussing standards in single-cell sequencing and cell ontology here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>